You know, this is an awesome day because we are gathered together to worship our God corporately. And we just have been encouraged just a few minutes ago. Thank you, Brother Jim, for just exhorting us because we all have a part in a a wonderful opportunity to declare the glory of Christ in this community. You know, this morning, um, this is, I should say a few weeks ago, Pastor David had approached me and asked if I would like to preach this morning. And I, I said yes, gladly, because there's something that has been been burning on my heart, something I've been wanting to share with you um, from the Word of God, something that has been uh, a great challenge in my own heart and soul. And so I just want to, uh, for us to examine the Scriptures, to, to understand what it means um, to have godly contentment. And that is the topic this morning. You know, I was at Costco the other day, and I saw, you know, Costco where America shops. Uh, no, um, hopefully not. Uh, I shouldn't say that. I was at Costco the other day, and I saw a Christmas tree and some decorations. And I, I went, wait, what time of the year is this? It's, it's September, and already the Christmas trees um, are out there, and, and they're just reminding me the the um, the store, and, and I'm sure it's all over the place where there's this promotion to, to say that it's that time of the year, and it is that time where we need to go and buy things that you really don't need, and you need to buy these things that you need, you don't need for others, or others don't need, but you need. You feel obligated, and and it sets up a a, a real discontentment. It's all really an, a, a very depressing time of year for many because of this particular season. You know, while I was serving in India too, and and coming back to the states, I, I noticed that um, I've seen so many families who had so many good intentions um, to serve the Lord fully, but they. They felt that they had to serve another master, and that master was the bank or the credit cards or the debts that they owed, and they found themselves um, having to pay off their debts, and they're yet the challenge of acquiring more debt because there's more stuff that they need to acquire that ultimately they really don't need, but they felt like they needed to, to purchase. And, and thus families really will compromise cer- certain biblical principles, and they will um, even personal convictions in order to maintain a certain lifestyle. The past, this past week, I was relaying to the Mission Commission um, just that uh, according to a survey in this Christian college, the number one reason why students on campus are not willing or not even considering serving the Lord in full-time ministry, especially full-time missions, is that there, that there was an unwillingness to put aside their personal comforts and material possessions. In other words, we love our stuff and we love our material possessions and we love our comforts so much that we're unwilling to yield and allow God to work in our lives to go and serve wherever He would call us. When is enough enough? So what is the underlying problem? This morning I want to focus on a particular passage that addresses an area that is very relevant to each of you and to me. And I want us to pay close attention because none of us are really immune to this problem. Open your Bibles, if you haven't, um, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
For those of you who may not have a Bible with you, you can turn to page 1189 and you'll find Pastor Vincent has just read to us the uh, entire chapter there. And just to give us a a context of uh, a breadth of what the Apostle Paul was addressing. You know, behind all the problems I mentioned stems from the issue of contentment. And I do not presume to think that that I will cover the topic in its entirety, but really to exhort us how to grow in our understanding of what it means to live for Christ joyously and to have godly contentment. You know, the Webster's Dictionary defines contentment as, quote, satisfied with what one is or has, not wanting more or anything else, unquote. In many seminaries today or in in Christian schools or Bible colleges, men and women are being trained about theology, about doctrine. But however, one aspect that is rarely discussed or focused upon is this important and practical arena of godly contentment. I've often wondered why, but I realize that, you know, it's not an academic pursuit um, or some knowledge to, to be acquired, but it's a matter of the heart, whereby one's faith is pra- and, and practice are challenged every day, if not every hour. And you can't measure it and grade a student and say, oh, he's got an A for godly contentment, you know. You can't measure that. Um, yet I believe that this virtue of the Christian life is one of the most critical um, areas to acquire Um, more than a degree or any accolade they they could receive. Because once you have mastered this arena of godly contentment, you have really conformed to the image of Christ. Notice I did not just say, um, I did not say just contentment, but godly contentment. And there is a difference between contentment and godly contentment. Because a non-Christian could be content. You know, that is the goal and essence of Buddhism. That's my background. I grew up as a Buddhist. And, and a Buddhist can be um, content if the goal of life is to be satisfied with what one is or has, not wanting, any, not wanting more or anything um, else, then many non-Christians can make that claim. If contentment is self-sufficiency, then many can claim that as well. But godly contentment is much deeper. Again, Paul says, godly contentment is great gain. This morning, I want to focus on this essential truth of godly contentment that we must understand, learn, and act upon so that we may truly bless God and be a blessing to fellow men. So what is godly contentment? Let's look at the context of Paul's exhortation to Timothy here. Paul was writing to Timothy, a young pastor, to be aware of several important matters regarding the care of the church in Ephesus. And Paul is very concerned about false teachers and and what they are teaching that's entering the church. And they're having greedy motives as to why they come in to the church. And Paul's comment in 1 Timothy 6 is an exhortation, really, to the leaders of the church. He notes there um, in chapter 6 there, verse 3 to 5, that if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, 
strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Paul reminds Timothy again in 2 Timothy 3 and in chapter 4 to beware of grumblers, people who, who seek to cause division through false teaching or seek their own interests. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, um, in verse 13, that these types of people are evil men and imposters who continue to, who will grow worse and worse in the church. And these types of concerns um, exist today. Um, and I say exist today in, in churches around. Um, Lord willing, it's not here in this body. But um, that's why we have elders who are, who are called to the local church to shepherd, to guard the flock from this coming in. In this context, one of the main emphasis Paul uses is this word godliness. And godliness is used eight times there in 1 Timothy. It's used also once in 2 Timothy and once in Titus. And the Greek word is eusebia. And it means likeness of God or reverence. And that, that godliness is something that you ought to... Re- you ought to look like God um, in, in terms of your devotion to him. Paul uses godliness in 1 Timothy 2, 2, saying that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. This godliness that Paul's referring to is an inward attitude and Versus dignified in First Timothy 2 there is an outward behavior. And both finds its source on its reliance and dependence of God's sovereign hand. And the Apostle Paul writes in, in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 12 that for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Paul encourages us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, that have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life, and also for the life to come. The Greek word for contentment, I've talked about godliness and I was using, citing different examples, but the Greek word for contentment, autarkeia, means self-sufficiency. And the word was often used to describe someone who was unmoved or unfazed by outside circumstances. So thus when Paul says godliness is accompanied by contentment, The combination of these character traits should be characteristic of all ministers and church leaders and by extension to all followers of Christ. One Bible dictionary um, truly defines, uh, I should say it really accurately defines true godliness this way, quote, having the proper conduct, true godliness is having the proper conduct that springs from a right relationship with him. It is not belief in itself but the devotion toward God and love toward man that result from that belief. 
It is the sum total of a person's character and action. And it produces both a present and future state of happiness, unquote. One English past, uh, Puritan pastor, you may have heard this name, Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, wrote a book, a book that I highly recommend. It's um, published by Banner of Truth Publishers. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. In this book, um, the author writes, quote, Contentment is the inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition, unquote. In other words, to live as God would have us live or to live as God has told us we should live. It is God-likeness. And godly contentment is worship of God that is produced in the inward life. And then it's demonstrated outwardly by the fruit of the Spirit. And that is what we need to constantly ask ourselves. Do we believe that God has provided for us sufficiently in all things? All things, good or bad. Do we believe he's provided for us? Pastor John MacArthur writes that godly contentment is based on the sufficiency provided by God the Father and Jesus Christ. He also notes here that our society has replaced people with things, conversation with entertainment. By so doing, we have lost the simple joys of life which center on relationships, the essence of Christian fellowship. Let me submit that godliness is not something we just do or say, but it is truly a reflection of who you really are, of who we, uh, we really are. You know, we, uh, we often ascribe that as to character. But yet the Apostle Paul warns us that it is not always characterized by men today and it, or in history as well. Godly contentment. Other um, scriptures describe godly contentment this way. You find it in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 8 uh, says, Better is little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. There's a wise prayer in Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 30, that that's really uh, captures what godly contentment is. Um, it says in cha- uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 through 9, it says, Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What is godly contentment? It is something that is born within. It's something that only God can do. Again, if, if we're talking about contentment, perhaps you don't need God. But the scriptures, Paul is addressing the issue of godly contentment. And that is something that has to come from God himself. Why is godly contentment great gain? The Apostle Paul provides five main points. And they're really all God-centered. In the verses following verse 6, I know I haven't, stuck to, uh, I haven't gone to the uh, verse 6 there of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. But when we read there, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. As I noted, Paul provides five main points about why godly contentment is great gain. Number one, 
Paul quickly answers this question, why is God a contentment great gain? He reminds us that our lives are really a gift from God. How do I know that? You look at verse 7 and it says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. You know, do you, do you recognize that, that it is great gain when you recognize that your life is a gift from God? Paul gives a second reason why. He says, all of our physical needs are met by God, and that is enough. We find that in verse 8 there. You see that, and, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. You know, we all need reminders in this way that our contentment should derive from our understanding of God's provision for us each moment of each day. All of our physical needs are met by God. And really, that is enough. Paul gives a third reason why, why is godly contentment great gain. It is part of God's means to protect us in this life and the life to come. Verse 9 and 10 notes that. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and ruin. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things. You know, I think of Judas who betrayed Christ. I think of Demas who left Paul because he loved the world. I think of Ananias and Sapphira. You're familiar with all these names, right? These are men and women who were identified as part of the church. But their true colors came out because they loved money. They, they loved the pleasures of this world. And yet Paul notes here that, that in verse 9 and 10 that it is part of God's means to protect us. When we have godly contentment, it is part of God's means to protect us in this life and the life to come. Paul gives a fourth reason why godly contentment is great gain. It is part of God's plan of exercising our faith in a sovereign God and having laid hold of eternal perspective. You see that just in verse 12 there. Paul exhorts Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. You know, life, our lives are just, it's just a blip in comparison to eternity. Do we believe that he has placed us here so that we may exercise and trust in him, that he is our sovereign God, that he has provided, and that we can find our satisfaction in that he cares for us, he provides for us, he attends to us? Paul answers, why is godly contentment great gain? A fifth reason is that it is a means of worship. It's a means of worship to God. And I say it's a means of worship to God who, because He allows all things, good or bad, to come our way providentially in order that we may trust Him with our lives. Paul notes that in verse 13 to 16 there, that God indeed gives life to all things because He's the only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord of Lords, and He alone is worthy of honor. Do we believe that that what He has provided in our life, 
whatever we may call good or bad, is part of still it's part of his means so that we may worship him and worship him alone. You know, I think of the lyrics to the hymn, All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whatever befalls me, Jesus doeth all things well. Do I believe that? You know, that was written by a blind woman. A woman who became blind at six six months of age, I think, or six at a very early age, and and yet did she learn godly contentment? God used her through the blindness to recognize that I can find my satisfaction in the God who who does see and cares and intercedes. That she could write a hymn, that one that we sing to remind ourselves: What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt? His tender mercy, who through life has been my guide. In summary, can you be totally content? In other words, satisfied and have peace with God's provision in your life. You know, God through his inspired word says much about godly contentment. It's not only found here in Paul's writing in 1 Timothy. We see in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30, It says, a sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Proverbs 23, verse 17 and 18 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day, for surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. The writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, that let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For God himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Who are some examples? Who are some examples of godly contentment? Now, when we look at the scriptures we find several examples, and I'm just going to give you a few uh, of men and women who have learned godly contentment, the secret of contentment. What would we do if we were in their shoes? Consider how these individuals, as I named them, um, how they responded to God's allowance of circumstances in their life. Some of you have heard me say this quote. <clears throat> Circumstances don't make or break you. They simply reveal you. I think of the life of Jacob. Jacob was a man who lost his wife, his dear wife Rachel. And as she was dying, because she was delivering um, her son, in Genesis 35, verse 18, you find Rachel was ready to name the son Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. But Jacob chose to name his son Benjamin, son of my right hand, a name of honor versus a name that would remind him of his terrible loss. You know, Jacob chose, despite the pain, chose to name his son Benjamin, a name of honor, to remind him that God is faithful. God has provided. God, this is son of my right hand, a man of honor. I think of Joseph. You know the story of Joseph. Joseph was a man who 
who was he, he was mistreated by his brothers because his brothers were jealous and envious of him. He had to suffer in a den- dungeon for years. And he could have been a very bitter man if he hadn't trusted in his sovereign God and believed that God was sovereign over all things. We know that because there was a point in time when Joseph could have easily sought revenge among his brothers. And you and I probably would have been tempted to just say, this is my time to get back, payback time to my, to my brothers who really who, who mistreated me. But you know, the, you know the story. You find it in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph says these powerful words. He says to his brothers, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. I think of the life of Moses. Moses was, as described in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 27. Listen to this account of the writer to the Hebrews describing Moses. Moses knowing what godly contentment means. It says, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. You know, Moses was a man who had learned godly contentment because he saw something greater, far greater than his life's circumstances. I think of Daniel. I think of Daniel who who practiced godly contentment every day. How do I know that? You read in Daniel chapter 6, you see that here is a situation where he was the governor and, and there were others who were envious of his position and wanted to bring him down. And they set up a law under King Darius and, and he, Daniel knew what was going on. He knew he was being set up for a fall. But you read the account in Daniel chapter 6, that in, in chapter 6 verse 10, you said, it says that it was his custom since early days you know, remember, he was kidnapped and he lost his family and he had, to, um, he had every reason to be bitter. But three times a day, he, he pointed towards Jerusalem and he gave thanks every day. Even though the consequences, he knew that if he was going to do this, it may cost him life, even to the um, being put in the lion's den. And yet that didn't change him. Circumstances didn't make or break him. It simply revealed to him that here was a man who learned godly contentment. I think of Ruth. Ruth who lost a husband. But she chooses to serve her mother-in-law because she believed the Lord God and refuses to go back to her former gods. You find that in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. I think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who had every reason to be discontent. And he shares his secret of learning contentment even in the face of Satan's attacks. How do I know that? You find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-10. to 10, You find that Paul writes this, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given me, 
a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Here's Paul's response. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure. I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. Those are just a few. Look it up yourself. You'll find that the men and women described in Hebrews 11, these are men and women who had learned godly contentment. Well, how do I, how do I combat discontentment? You know, Paul, um, Paul outlines a number of proactive steps that requires another sermon, but I don't have time for that this morning. But let me give you a summary of it. Um, look in, go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and you look there, verses 11 to 14. Paul gives a real proactive steps to combat discontentment. You see that. It says, but as for you, O man of God, flee. Flee these things. What things? The love of money. And then pursue, that means to focus, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight. You see, notice these proactive words. I mean, flee, pursue, fight the good fight of faith, take hold, that means taking firm hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in the testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to what? To keep firm, to, to hold on the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, all of these proactive steps are God-given means to combat the natural tendency for all of us for discontentment. And we would do well to heed that instruction. That, that we would take these proactive steps. But I want to move and, and look at and answer the question, well, how do I acquire godly contentment? You're saying it's a God-given thing. How do I acquire godly contentment? You know, there is another means, one other means that Paul emphasizes in another passage that focuses on seeking godly contentment, and it is by learning. It's learning And learning means it's a willful choice to humble oneself and be taught on a continual basis. Why? Because it is, you don't automatically turn on and I'm, I have godly contentment. It's not one of those things. It's it's a process of learning. And Paul says that in Philippians chapter 4. He says, if you turn to Philippians, I don't know in the Pew Bible what number that is, but, but in Philippians Chapter 4, Paul describes how he learns to be content. You see that in verse 11 to 13. Paul writes here that, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, there's that word, learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. That means to live humbly. I know how to abound. 
That means to live prosperously. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We often use that passage, but it's in the context, mindful, of learning godly contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, Paul adds later in verse 19 there in Philippians 4, And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul learned contentment because he knew his God. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to say that you can't attain godly contentment. You can't learn from God if you don't know him personally. But I want to suggest to you, um, I would like to su- suggest three practical areas to learn how to pursue and possess this godly contentment. Number one, learn to look up and see his providential care. And that God causes all things to work together for good. You know this passage, right? Romans 8, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Learn to look up. One godly saint by the name of Corey Tenboom, you've heard me share this quote before. Corey Tenboom was one who suffered um, during World War II. Her family suffered greatly. She lost her sister in the concentration camps, and she was there as well. But she, I, I love this quote. It's a very simple but practical quote. Look abroad and be distressed. Look within and be depressed. Look to Jesus. In other words, look up and be at rest. Recognize that godly contentment is a gift from God. For some of us, though, we we struggle that. But I do go to God. Well, but you may not go to God with the right motives. How do I know that? Uh, The Apostle James writes in James chapter 4 that you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your own pleasures. All of us need to truly ask ourselves, do we see, desire God's pleasures or our own? And when I say to look up, I think of Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give the desires of your heart. I think of Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in where? In my mouth, Right? You look up. You learn to look up. Learn, I say. A second practical area to learn how to pursue this godly contentment. Learn to give thanks. Paul writes in another letter in 1 Thessalonians 5. You're familiar with this passage. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, part of fulfilling God's will for your life is to give thanks. And that's why, you know, that's part of the reason why we sing together. Why you should sing even in a private way. Just because it's a way of saying you're learning to look up and you're learning to give thanks. People are always seeking, what is God's will for my life? You, You just point them to... 1 Thessalonians 5 here and say, you need to learn to give thanks. That's part of God's will for your life. Um, One reason why Paul could give thanks 
to God is because he knew that the God whom he was praising was the one who has already blessed them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly. We know that, right? In Ephesians 1, verse 3. But when I, when I say learn to give thanks, I want us to... I've kind of broken it down to four different arenas where we can learn to give thanks. And, and these are ones that are very practical. When, when you think about your own... Consider your own physical privileges that you have before you. Um, the fact that you have um, good health. All of you are here, so you must have, be in relatively good health. Um, the fact that you can enjoy life through your physical senses. The fact that you can touch, taste, see, smell, hear. Those are all physical privileges that you have. And you can learn to give thanks. Praise God that you have given me the ability to enjoy God's life. God's provision in my life here. And, and you can really taste and see that the Lord is good. But then consider your material privileges. Consider just where you live. The fact that you live in a place that shelters you from the environment. From the fact that you have running water, electricity. All these things we kind of take for granted. We heard earlier this morning in, in uh, the Sojourner class of Promise uh, serving in Papua New Guinea. And, and you see the provisions, you see this, the material lack of privileges that they have in Papua New Guinea. And we think of our time. We are, we're living in a time of unprecedented wealth and material wealth. And any time in, in all of history, human history, we are living in this, that day and age. And yet, we still what? We still complain. Do we not? All of us struggle with that. I wish I had more of this or more of that. I wish I could live in this place or that place. I mean, the list goes on and on. <clears throat> How do I know that? Because I've heard it from you and I've heard it from my own lips. Because I am one who is prone to complain as well. But when I consider the material privileges, the physical privileges, I, can, I think of the mental privileges, the, the fact that you have the ability to read, write, comprehend, the ability to communicate to others. Those are, you have the mental capacity, at least most of you do, right? Um, have that ability. Uh, and, but that's a God-given privilege. That's a privilege. And those are just on the physical level. But I think of your spiritual privileges. The Apostle Peter puts it this way, that God's divine power has been granted to us in all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You know, when you consider your riches, your riches in Christ, something even angels long to look, you are a child of God. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that you have recognized that you were in bondage to sin and death, and yet you recognize that God has provided a mediator, someone who He loved you when you didn't love Him, and He provided the means in Jesus Christ to die for your sin, and now you have embraced that by faith in placing your full confidence, your full trust. You've turned away from your sin and recognized, I needed Christ to have the forgiveness of sins. You know, you are an heir of God and a fellow heir of Christ. You have a place prepared for you in heaven. You have eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. You have a mediator in Christ. You have an intercessor. 
You have the love of Christ that nothing and no one can separate. You have a high priest who sympathizes with you in your weakness. You have a God who is for you. Who can be against you? You have His Spirit who fills you with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, God, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the God who has graced you with so much spiritual privileges. I think of Psalm 139. Psalm, 30, Psalm 139 talks about God's infinite care for you. But let me just read one portion of that. In verse 17, Psalm, David writes here, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. Every time I go to the beach, I think of that passage. Because I look at the sand on the beaches and I think, God's thoughts towards us, towards me, towards you. That's how vast the sum of them. God's thoughts are even far greater And you are the recipient of His spiritual privileges. You are part of the body of Christ, the local church. You have a family of fellow believers whom you can call as brothers and sisters in Christ. In this local church, you have shepherds who watch over your soul. You have deacons who are responsible for the oversight of the physical needs of the body. You have men and women who who want to serve you, who want to serve the needs, who, who, for those of you who are younger, who want to know how to grow in Christ, there's older women who can help you. I think of the children's ministry. I think of, you know, you have, your children have access to be cared for, to be taught the Word of God at an early age. You have fellowship groups every Sunday morning. For those of you in the college and career group, you have weekly Bible studies. You have the CNC group. For those of you in high school and junior high, you have weekly fellowships and then you, you meet Sunday morning. These are all spiritual privileges. And we have a new Spanish-speaking ministries. For those of you who English is not your first language, you have now the opportunity here in your heart language. And then I think of, is this the first time you've ever heard anything about God's Word? God's, the good news? No. You've been Overwhelmed. How many times you've had a banquet, of a buffet of spiritual blessing. And yet, do you... I hear people grumble and complain, and it breaks my heart. It breaks God's heart that we, of a people who have been graced with so much privilege, and we find discontentment, that we're not satisfied. It is enough. The teaching is not good enough. The music is not good enough. Whatever is not good enough. And I'm thinking, what? wait a minute. You are graced with so much privilege. I'm talking to an extremely privileged group of people here. And I think of, if you don't recognize that, you know, you really are, you are spoiled children then. You are, for those of us who who complain, you are spoiled. And God has a word for you on that. And if you continue on in this series in Romans, you'll understand. You just look at the Israelites. They've been, they were blessed and yet they rejected. I said learn to look up. Learn to give thanks. And finally learn 
Learn to give of yourselves. How do you do that? By visiting the poor, the elderly, the homeless, the afflicted, the sick, the ones confined in their homes. You know, we just had a number of people stand up here for the Upland campaign. Why? Because they want to learn to give of themselves, that God has richly graced them and blessed them, and they want to declare the excellencies of Christ. Learn. Learn to give of yourself. You know, James tells us that for where envy and self-seeking exists, confusion and every evil thing are there. But he tells us earlier in James chapter 1 that pure and undefiled religion is this. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Why, you may ask, why should I do these? Why should I visit and think of others besides myself? Because when you realize, when you realize that others who are much more need than you are, you will recognize that God's mercy upon your life, that you're not in such a miserable state as you thought you were. You know, you think, oh, woe is me, and you're not in that bad shape. You know, Christian by definition means little Christ. And that means one who looks more like Christ. I think of Paul's words in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And what is that mindset? It means taking the form of a servant. That means to learn to give of yourself. Let me just give some closing thoughts here. And realizing... Um, I'm going to go a little bit over time, but I'll blame my brother Jim for that. No. <laughs> um, closing thoughts here. You know, we are the bride of Christ. We desire to present ourselves as the lovely bride. But, but one of the most important features of that is that, that we should reflect the heart of, of godly contentment. And, you know, Jesus tells us that, that all men will know that we are his disciples if we have what? What? Love for one another. But how can we say we love Christ when we are envying, self-seeking, disgruntled, discontent, and unthankful? We need to guard our hearts in this matter because none of us are exempt. None of us are exempt from grumbling, from complaining, of growing dissatisfied. People often say Christians are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good and And I disagree with that statement. I worry that many who attend church are more earthly-minded that they are of no heavenly good. You know, God forbid that anyone here is of that, that you are so earthly-minded that you are of no heavenly good. We have been immensely blessed. And to enjoy God's favor, godly contentment is great gain. There's an illustration that I read, and I I thought it was a good illustration to use, is that in using this cup, uh, um, so often in our perspective life, you know, sorry, poured a little, it's water, it's water. So so often in, in our perspective life, the spilled water of envy, unfulfilled dreams or desires, comparisons with others, Harmful comments from family and friends, afflictions from other people are poured out upon your life. And we get disappointed 
discouraged, or even depressed. However, when we truly recognize that this cup of water of personal pain is nothing compared to the ocean of His mercy upon your life, upon our life, you recognize that. I can say it is well. It is well with my soul. Jesus doeth all things well. Martin Luther, you may have heard that name, one who faced many cups of personal pain, once said, quote, The sea of God's mercies should swallow up all of our particular afflictions, unquote. You know, if we recognize that our discomforts or distresses are nothing compared to His infinite love for us, do we believe that? Do we believe that God has provided every need for us in, in every hour, that, that we are rich? It is a fight of faith. I, I confess it is. It's a struggle. But God, help us to rise above our self-pity that we recognize that indeed, our God is a sun and shield. He's the one who gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's Psalm 84. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in Thee. Let me close in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank You that indeed we are a people who have been immensely blessed And so we ask, Father, that you would give us a greater capacity to understand the riches that we have in Christ Jesus, that then we would, in view of your mercy, we would offer our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, which is our spiritual service of worship. Lord, we ask that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, before I have Ron come up, um, I want to say that for those of you who say, I don't get it, I don't understand, or I want to understand this. Help me. There will be some men here by the lighted cross who may be able to, who will be able to answer your questions according to the Word of God. How can you attain this godly contentment? Um, and I would ask and invite you to come to do that.